Welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. If you're a new listener to the show, we really appreciate you tuning in. Would you just do us a quick favor? Head on to iTunes Podcast, scroll down to the bottom, and hit five stars. Leave a review if you'd like as well. It really drives the show up the charts, and we want more and more people getting exposed to the truth about life and what is happening to our pre-born neighbors, especially in a political season where Roe v. Wade is so close to getting overturned and the abortion industrial complex is losing their ever-loving minds, more and more people will be looking for truth and looking for how to defend life. And you can help us reach more people by subscribing, giving us a rating and review, or following us on YouTube as well. Today is Monday, May 16th. We actually may be receiving a decision from the Supreme Court as early as today, as they're scheduled to release some of their opinions today. And hopefully they will fast track their decision and vote on the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization lawsuit, which would overturn Roe versus Wade. And we know where the votes stood because of the Supreme Court draft opinion leak. It's very important for the justices to vote to overturn Roe versus Wade and to do so quickly and decisively and not cave to political pressure of left-wing violent activists. In the meantime, we're releasing a special episode today from my university speaking tour, this one from Kennesaw State University, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, hosted by the Students for Life Club, and includes the Q&A portion with crazed abortion activists, which I think you will enjoy. Share this episode broadly. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. So I'd like to start by answering this question, what is bigotry? Um, We tend to throw that phrase around a lot in today's political discourse, especially against our political opponents. Everyone gets accused of being a bigot. Uh, I'm not for overusing phrases to uh, demean or attack uh, my political opponents, so I think it's important to get a very specific definition of this word. The Oxford English Dictionary defines bigotry as prejudice against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. Pretty good definition. I would maybe even uh, define it a little even more narrow in its application. I would define bigotry as discrimination against someone else, especially based on immutable characteristics they have no control over. I think we could agree that bigotry, perhaps in its nastiest form, is not ideological. You know, it's like you have a worldview. You, if I discriminate against you based off ideas, I'm discriminating against ideas. Now, obviously, I shouldn't like bar you from a room for getting in because you have a different view of politics. But a specifically nasty form of bigotry would be discrimination based off of race or sex. We have no control over our skin color. We have no control over our gender, I guess, ex- except in the age of Fauci and progressivism where men can become women and <laughs> women can become men. But we used to believe that sex was what you were born with and you couldn't change it. And so I'm here to suggest that being pro-choice is bigotry because it discriminates against the, uh, the unborn by killing them through quote-unquote choice based off of immutable characteristics the unborn child has no control over, namely their size, their level of development, their location, and their degree of dependency. By the way, characteristics that we all once shared. It is in virtue of being an unborn child to be smaller, less developed, in a different environment, and more dependent. But I want to look at a few examples historically of bigotry that I think we'd all agree with. So if you're here and you describe yourself as pro-choice or pro-abortion, I think we can find common ground 
in these particular forms of bigotry, and then I'm going to make the case that abortion is wrong for the same reason. So what about slavery? Well, in Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1856, the Supreme Court specifically said that the black man was a subordinate and inferior, inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race bigoted language. The Virginia Supreme Court in 1858 said that in the eyes of the law, the slave is not a person. And if you know the history of slavery in America, you know that black slaves were often assigned extremely dehumanizing names, such as Mingo, Savage, Gollywog, Jezebel, and through images were portrayed as subhuman. How about the Holocaust? Well, the Hiskerich, or the German Supreme Court, in 1936 refused to recognize Jews as persons in the legal sense. And cartoons, similarly, were used to depict Jews as dogs, pigs, rats, and other vermin, all through the propaganda machine of the Nazi party. And Nazis would use dehumanizing terms to dehumanize their victim class, calling Jews parasites and bacillus, which means bacteria, to describe those that they exterminated. East Europeans were considered untermensch. Untermensch literally is translated subhuman and was the title of Heinrich Himmler's propaganda book. What about Native Americans? Well, this practice of dehumanizing disfavored minorities, unfortunately, also helped facilitate genocide against Native Americans. In 1881, writing in the American Law Review, legal scholar George F. Canfield opined that, quote, an Indian is not a person within the meaning of the Constitution. And he added, quote, Congress may prevent an Indian leaving his reservation. And while he is on a reservation, it may deprive him of his liberty, his property, and his life. Congress may break its treaties with him as it may repeal a statute. After then, it was broadly legal to kill Native Americans. The Orange County Register, where I've lived for several years, on May 31st, 1999, reported death threats against members of the Macaw Native American tribe who had killed a gray whale off the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And the phraseology they used said, save a whale, harpoon a maca. And the article quotes David T. Wellman, who's a research sociologist at UC Berkeley and the author of the book Portraits of White Racism. And he provides us with some very helpful language to understand how language specifically is used in bigotry to dehumanize the victim class in question and normalize their mistreatment. And he says, when you start hearing language that it's time to hunt Indians again, you have to realize that's the language of genocide. A necessary presupposition is that Indians are subhuman that they're huntable like animals. Violent racism is almost never recognized as racism while it's happening. It's always called something else. Exactly. The practitioners of genocide and bigots in general never think that they're bad people, do they? <laughs> they always think that they're on the right side of history to use an overused phrase. Well, the violence of abortion is often called choice and reproductive health care and reproductive justice instead of baby killing. And lastly, women's suffrage is another unfortunate chapter in the history of bigotry, bigotry and dehumanization in America. Women have not escaped this tragic trend of bigotry. Stephen J. Goode, Gold, Goode, I always forget Belch's his last name, notes in The Mismeasure of Man from 1981 that uh, Darwin's disciple, Gustave Le Bon, who's the father of social psychology, believed, quote, even in the most intelligent races, there are large numbers of women whose brains are closer in size to those of gorillas than to the most developed male brains. This is the 
disciple of Darwin. Women represent the most inferior forms of human evolution and are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilized male. While denying this humanity to women made it easier, of course, to deny them personhood rights, such as suffrage, the right to hold property, obtain the best education for which they were academically qualified, and obtain the best job for which they were occupationally qualified. So bigotry always entails the dehumanization of an entire class of human beings that, by the way, the elite class typically admit are actually human beings, but it denies them personhood. Those who murdered Jews and blacks denied the personhood of their victims just as vehemently as the practitioners of abortion deny the personhood of the unborn. Now, I understand that slavery, the Holocaust, abortion, women's suffrage, these are all circumstantially and historically different issues and debates. However, they're justified with the same strategies and language, and they're a deadly repetition of history that uses the tactics of dehumanization to justify the killing of those who were defined by the society as undesirable or unwanted. But that's how powerful bigotry is. That's the point. Nobody who's pro-choice thinks they're a bigot. Just like racists and Nazis didn't think that they were bigots when they were exercising their tyranny against their unique victim class. Today, the victim class is smaller and more silent, unborn children in a womb that we all once came from. As my colleague Scott Klusendorf points out, in the past, we used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and ethnicity, and we still do at times in America. But today, we discriminate on the basis of size, level of development, environment, and dependency with elective abortion. We've simply swapped one form of bigotry for another. So why are racism and sexism wrong? I would suggest it's because we pick out surface differences that don't really matter to our human nature and our equality, and we elevate them as decisive. Because at the end of the day, your sex and your skin color don't actually matter to your human nature. Because our human nature is the only thing we all have in common. We're all human beings. We pick out these surface differences, we elevate them, and make them decisive. And I would submit to you the following. The differences between the unborn baby and the born infant, which are used by the pro-abortion advocate to justify abortion, are also just surface differences that don't truly matter at the end of the day when it comes to our human rights. And what right could be more fundamental than the right to life. And we'll get to what those differences are between the unborn child in the womb and the born child outside of the womb and how those differences are used to justify abortion in just one second. But I'd like to suggest the following. I do agree with my opponents that suggesting that abortion is bigotry and that pro-choicers are bigots is ludicrous and offensive if the unborn child is not a human being. If the unborn child is not a human being and they are an insensate blob of tissue, then suggesting that abortion is genocide makes no sense whatsoever because I'd be making an argument for the personhood of blobs of tissue. If, however, the unborn child is a human being, then the arguments used to dehumanize them should be rejected just as the arguments were used to dehumanize the black man, the Indian, the woman, and the Jew. So at the end of the day, the most fundamental question we have to ask and answer is what is the unborn? The unborn is not one of us, and they're not a human being. Then no justification for abortion is necessary. You don't have to justify abortion if the victim is actually not a human. However, if the unborn child is a human being, then no justification for abortion is adequate. In other words, no justification suffices to defend your 
position. So what is the unborn? Well, ironically, believe it or not, I actually do agree with Dr. Fauci. We should follow the science coming from someone who denies the personhood and humanity of unborn children and believes women can be men and men can be women. Don't worry, it's just science. Well, what does the science of embryology teach? The science of embryology has taught for decades that from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. In other words, you didn't become gradually a human being in the process of your prenatal development. Uh, you started as a human being at the point of conception and you gradually unfolded the potential that the actual human you already had. And unless you believe in a fetus fairy that sprinkles magical personhood conferring fairy dust on the child as it exits the birth canal, you would have to agree that human life doesn't begin some magical process during the nine months in the womb or the magical birth canal that confers personhood, but it happens when sperm and egg die and you come into existence at the moment of conception. So from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. What do these terms mean? Well, I haven't cherry-picked these terms to make the pro-life position sound more intellectually tenable. You'll find, actually find these uh, terms in almost any embryology textbook on any university campus anywhere in the country, including the Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology, one of the most widely used books on biology and embryology in the country today. And the author Keith L. Moore says the following, human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized titipotent cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. And he says later in the textbook, a zygote is the beginning of a new human being. So you were distinct because actually the body in her body is not her body. As much as you hear the phraseology, my body, my choice, um, that's always been based off of a fantasy view of science that the left has been, that built their entire political ideology on. Why? Because if the body in her body is her body and we all agree abortion kills something, then why isn't every pregnant woman dead after an abortion? Uh, because the body in her body is not her body. Additionally, if the body in her body is part of her body, so there's only one body, the mother's, then I guess pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts, two different DNA codes, potentially two different blood types existing simultaneously. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, now pregnant women have male genitalia. Uh, that's everything you would have to admit if you said that there's only one body, the mother's. We all know that there's a different human being inside of the uterus, which is the only organ in a woman's body that's not there for her body. It's there for the creation and protection of another human being. You're living from the moment of conception because I know this one's very sciencey. you ready? Dead things don't grow. The unborn child is growing, they're developing their own internal growth from within, and pregnant women don't actually will their unborn children to develop. Uh, unborn children actually do it themselves, right? I have two children, my wife never rubbed her belly saying, don't forget to grow today, fetus. Uh, the baby was directing her own internal growth from within. So they're living. And lastly, you were a whole human being from the moment of conception. Actually, it's one of the most important concepts from the science of embryology. Don't confuse being a whole human being with being a developed human being, okay? A whole human being is one who already has everything they need to, to realize their full growth and development is a participating member of the human species. Uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, it's very similar to a Polaroid photo. You guys remember Polaroid cameras? Okay, it spits the photo out as soon as you take it and you kind of shake it for a few seconds, right? So imagine that you've won tickets to a safari excursion in Africa. You get to go out on this tricked out tour guide vehicle and you get to see all the wildlife out in the plains 
of the um, desert. And, and, and so you get to see some elephants and lions, and after a few hours, the tour guide tells you, hey, we're entering an area where a black jaguar was sighted recently. Now, black jaguars are pretty cool animals. They're rarely seen and even more rarely photographed. And so everyone's hoping to get a picture of this black jaguar. But after a couple hours, no black jaguar, sunset, the last 15 minutes of twilight, everyone's lost interest. But you with the Polaroid camera, you've been more patient. And to your luck, as all your friends are distracted, a black jaguar sprints out from the bushes, leaps across the path in front of your bus, and you capture a picture of this black jaguar airborne. By the time the photo gets spit out, the jaguar's gone and no one but you saw him. You start shaking the photo to develop. You're so excited. At that point, I rip the photo out of your hands. I tear it up into little pieces and I throw it out the window of the bus. Now, are you upset with me? Mm, sure, but what if I tell you, well, that wasn't actually a picture of a black jaguar. It was just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. Well, you would probably say, well, Seth, the black jaguar was actually already there. We just couldn't see him yet. You see, everything that was necessary for the photo to realize its full development is already present when the photo gets spit out. It just needed time. And that's the science that the left can't handle. You were a distinct living and whole human being from the moment of conception who already had everything you needed to realize your full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Even if we couldn't see you yet, you also just needed time. For example, I'm 30, I'm not 40. We know that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. Now, my wife recently found this out, and she was very encouraged by that. She's really holding out hope for me. Uh, but you see, there are aspects of my mental development I have not realized because I'm not 40. Does that mean I'm not a whole human being now? No, we're, we're whole now. You're a whole human being now, despite the fact that there's much of a college-age student's and a 30-year-old's mental development we have not realized yet. That is the science of embryology. Just to quote some additional embryologists, biologists, oh, and by the way, former Planned Parenthood presidents who say that I'm right, that of course the unborn child is a human being. Dr. Jeremy Leguin, a professor of genetics at the University of Descartes, says, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. It is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is, pl it is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. In other words, if you disagree, you're just wrong. The science is so established that it's not, no longer a matter of taste or opinion. What about Peter Singer? If you haven't heard the name Peter Singer, not only is he one of the most lauded pro-abortion philosophers on the left today, but he also publicly defends infanticide. Uh, he's been defending infanticide since 19, early 1990s, specifically in a book called Practical Ethics. And he argues in this book that the same qualities that deny personhood to the unborn if he's consistent, would also deny personhood to the infant. Certain mental abilities, self-awareness, desires, or other cognitive abilities that Peter Singer argues the unborn doesn't have, and because the unborn child doesn't have those abilities, they're not a person, he's consistent enough to admit, well, neither does the infant, actually. And he defends uh, intellectually infanticide up to one years old. And in his book, Practical Ethics, in 1993, he said, whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. What about Anne Ferroidi? Anne Ferroidi is the CEO of the largest independent abortion provider in the UK. 
And in a 2008 debate, Ann Freud, he said the following, we can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, it has its own genetic system, it's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is human life. Faye Waddleton was the president of Planned Parenthood in the late 90s, in 1997 specifically, and she said in an uh, interview with Miss Magazine the following. She said, I think we have deluded ourselves, who's ourselves, Planned Parenthood, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Alan Guttmacher, the former president of Planned Parenthood from the 70s and the namesake of the Guttmacher Institute, which is today Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch. Alan Guttmacher admitted in page three of his book, Life in the Making, regarding whether people knew that human life began at conception. He said, this all seems so simple and evident that it's difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge. So there's two Planned Parenthood presidents who agree with me that the unborn child is obviously a human being. Camille Paglia, a radical pro-choice feminist and academic at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, wrote a 2008 Salon.com article where she was more intellectually honest than any pro-choice activist I've ever come across. And by the way, Camille Paglia has not become pro-life, and here's what she says. Hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. So Camille Paglia, a radical pro-choice activist and feminist, saying not only is the unborn child a human being, but abortion is murder. Not the murder of insensate blobs of tissue, but concrete individuals. So if we're going to have an honest conversation on abortion, we need to be fully informed with what that decision entails. And if you're pro-choice, I actually think you have a moral duty to look at what abortion is and does to the unborn child. It is legal to get an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy in this country. The Guttmacher Institute reports that there are about 12,000 annual abortions post-viability, meaning after the child could survive outside the womb, does not require the mother's uterus to survive. About 12,000 children are killed after viability a year in this country. And in Washington, D.C., some pro-life activists recently obtained 115 mutilated bodies of aborted children, five of whom were likely killed through partial birth abortion. Uh, partial birth abortion is illegal in this country. It was exercised in the late second and early, late second trimester and early third trimester where you forcibly deliver a child feet first, but you leave the head and the shoulder blades in the vaginal canal and you take Metzenbaum scissors and you stab them in the back of the baby's neck to open up a hole. By the way, I could read you a description of this from the man who invented the procedure. You stick a suction catheter tube into the back of the head and you suck the brains out. This is now illegal as of 2003, I believe. Uh, but we have reason to believe this is still happening in America today. And the collapsed skulls of some of these late-term aborted babies at the Washington, D.C. Surgery Clinic, killed by abortionist Santangelo, um, suggests that the babies were indeed killed through partial birth abortions because abortions are continuing to happen through the third trimester in America today. And Naomi Wolf, one of the most lauded, uh, successful uh, feminists and pro-choice voices today, 
uh, said in a New Republic article several years ago that pro-choicers actually have a moral duty uh, to look at what abortion does to unborn children. Here's what she said. She said, the pro-choice movement often treats with contempt those pro-lifers practice of holding up to our faces their disturbing graphics. But how can we charge that it is vile and repulsive for pro-lifers to brandish vile and repulsive images if the images are real? To insist that the truth is in poor taste is the very height of hypocrisy. Besides, if these images are often the facts of the matter, and if we then claim that it is offensive for pro-choice women to be confronted with them, then we are making the judgment that women are too inherently weak to face a truth about which they have to make a grave decision. This view is unworthy of feminism. Well, I agree with the pro-choice activist feminist Naomi Wolf that pro-choicers have a moral duty to look at what abortion is and does to the unborn child. Else we can criticize them as treating women as too weak to view the reality about a quote-unquote medical procedure that they are contemplating. So yes, the unborn child is a human being. Anyone who disagrees with this at this point is not on the side of science. They've substituted science for their political ideology. However, the response of many people after citing all the Planned Parenthood presidents who say that I'm right, that the unborn child is a human being, might then agree. The pro-choicer might say, okay, the unborn child is a human being. They have human DNA. I mean, living things reproduce after their own kind. By the way, there's a law for that. It's called the law of biogenesis. This is why two dogs don't make a cat. So a male and a female, guess, guess what? Yeah, yeah, they make a human being. I know it's pretty crazy. But the response of many pro-choicers today will simply be to deny the personhood of the unborn human being that they've just admitted is a human being. Now, careful treading into these historical disgusting waters, there is not a single historical example of a group and class of human beings being denied personhood that has ended well. In fact, it usually ends in genocide. But to admit that the unborn is a human and deny them personhood really is the only option available to the pro-choice advocate to still attempt to justify abortion. You only have two options, deny the unborn child as a human being, or admit they're a human being, but deny they're a person, taking a page out of the Nazis and the racists, who, what did they do? Oh yes, their Supreme Courts denied personhood to a class of humans that they knew were humans. And historically, the argument over personhood typically deals with the possession of certain acquired properties, or the immediate capacity to exercise certain functions or cognitive abilities. So slavery, the Holocaust, and abortion all discriminate against human beings by putting greater importance on what the human entity looks like rather than on how they function, on who they really are, which is what? A human being. So when personhood is separated from the living human body, then human value becomes subjective. What do I mean by that? If we don't ground our human rights in the only thing we have in common, what's the only thing we have in common? We're all humans. If we ground our rights in something other than our human nature, and we say, actually, personhood and rights deals with cognitive abilities, functions, desires, and immediately exercisable capacities, then you actually destroy human equality. Because who gets to decide what is the litmus test for personhood? Who gets to decide those which cognitive abilities or functions must be met before you have, quote unquote, personhood rights? Well, then might makes right. Who gets to decide the cognitive traits that matter to be a person? So what acquired properties do pro-choice individuals use to deny the unborn rights of personhood? And make no mistake, this typically is how the argument happens on the issue of abortion. There are some who still push the bodily autonomy argument, her body, her choice, so it doesn't matter if the unborn is a human, 
It doesn't matter if the unborn child has rights. The mother's rights to her comfort and happiness supersede the right to life of the child. And we can deal with those arguments in the Q&A section if you'd like. However, typically the argument for abortion today simply says the unborn child is not a person. They don't have the same rights as the mother does. So why? Well, it's because they say the unborn child is smaller, less developed, in a different environment, and more dependent. The acronym SLED, if you need help remembering it, SLED, size, level of development, environment, and dependency. But it's that level of development that becomes significant because they say until the unborn child is developed to the point that they have self-awareness, ability to feel pain, desires, etc., then they're not a person. So let's look briefly at these. Firstly, size. Obviously, size does not ground our rights. Shaquille O'Neal is no more valuable than Barbara Streisand. Uh, but people say, well, how could the unborn child be a human being with rights? You can't even see them at two weeks or three weeks old. Well, since when his size had any bearing on our rights. By the way, uh, raise your hand if you were aborted. Was anyone aborted in this room? Right. Our mothers all chose life. We're all unaborted human beings. So everyone, pro-life or pro-choice, is actually very grateful that their mother wasn't exercising her reproductive rights. What about level of development? Uh, yes, it's true. The unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. Just like newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Just like our grandparents are more developed than all of us. But it doesn't mean that grandparents can kill their grandchildren because grandparents are more developed. Development is a continuum. When did that human development begin? How about when we became a human? At the moment of conception. At that point, we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But the left often argues it's because the child is less developed that they're not self-aware. That's true. Unborn children are not self-aware. They're not aware of themselves as a unique autonomous individual who's never existed before and will never exist again. But did you know that self-awareness doesn't occur until months after birth? I have a couple kids. Let me tell you something that never happened. Our one-month-old never looked in the mirror after my wife put on a cute outfit and said, wow, mom, I look adorable. Thanks for the cute romper. I'm aware of myself as a unique individual who's never existed before and will never exist again. And I'm really glad my name's Jack. Uh, you see, infants are not self-aware. So if we're going to make the argument that we can kill unborn children through abortion because, hey, they don't know they're being aborted. That's another argument you'll hear from the pro-abortion movement. They don't know. What's it to them? They're not self-aware yet. Well, if you apply that litmus test for personhood outside the womb, why not justify killing infants like Peter Singer does until, the, until that maybe five or six-month-old is self-aware, right? Well, then they say the unborn child is not conscious. Correct, the unborn child is not conscious. Neither are you when you're sleeping, when you get knocked out in a fight, or if your grandpa's in a coma. You would not be conscious. Now, let's say you're having that very difficult conversation as maybe some people in this room have actually had, and you're in the waiting room and you're deciding whether to remove life support from, from dear grandma or grandpa because they've been in a coma for a few months and you don't know if they're going to return. Let's say while you're having that difficult conversation, I sneak into the hospital room with a box cutter and I slit your grandpa's throat. Now, let's say you and your family decide to pull the plug, you know what I mean, to remove life support. You come in and you find grandpa dead. No big deal, right? Because you were going to pull the plug so he would have died. So he would have been dead. I just sped it up and he's dead. So the end in both scenarios is he's dead. Okay. And oh, by the way, he wasn't conscious. So when I slit his throat, I didn't actually violate any of his personhood rights. Because remember, you're pro-choice and you said the unborn child is not a person when they're not conscious. Because that's what it means to be a person. Do you see if you apply that litmus test outside of the womb, 
you can justify the murder of people that I think most pro-choicers would not like to justify the murder of. What about desires? They say the baby's less developed, so they don't have any desires. This one is a little bit more in the halls of academia, so I guess it's appropriate to discuss at a university. You don't hear this on the street level as much, but often professors or philosophers who defend abortion rights will say something like this. If I don't violate your desire for a thing, I haven't violated your right to that thing. So how would this be an example on abortion? They might say, if you don't desire a right to life and you're not aware of your desire for that right, then if I abort you, in this case in the womb, and I kill you, well, I haven't violated your right to life because you didn't have a desire for a right to life. Therefore, there was no uh, usurpation of your rights in the first place because that right didn't exist for you because you didn't desire it. That makes sense, it's a little bit strange. Okay, well, let's apply that outside of the womb. If you have suicidal tendencies, okay, which I'm not making light of, specifically as suicidal tendencies are out the freaking window right now uh, with all of the shutdowns and the young people. In my home state of California, more people under 25 are dead from killing themselves than are dead from COVID. Um, so this is actually real world stuff. Let's just take that example. If you have suicidal tendencies, do you desire to go on living? No, that's what it means to have suicidal tendencies. You don't want to live anymore. So can we murder people who have suicidality? Because remember, like the fetus in the womb, they don't have a desire for a right to life. If not, and we reject that application of those with suicidal tendencies, then you ought to reject it for the unborn child in the womb who also doesn't desire a right to life. What about Buddhists? Buddhists try to reach or realize something called nirvana. Uh, nirvana is the eradication of all desires. Now, I'm not convinced that you could pull this off, but for the sake of argument, let's say you could reach a point where you're so enlightened and whatever, woke, nirvana, that you have eradicated your desires for everything. Well, then you would also have eradicated your desire for your right to life. So can we murder people who are Buddhists and reach nirvana? Because like the baby in the womb, they don't desire a right to life. And the left told me that if a baby doesn't desire the right to life, they don't have that right to life. Therefore, I haven't compromised their rights. If we don't like where that reasoning leads, maybe we shouldn't apply it in the womb. Lastly, they say the baby can't feel pain in the womb. Actually, the baby can feel pain, but up to a certain point, they can't. That is correct. Dr. Maureen Kondik, who is an expert in fetal pain and a neurobiologist, has testified before a U.S. subcommittee in Congress several years ago. Uh, giving updates on the science of fetal pain. And uh, by, uh, by 13 and a half weeks, the unborn child has what's called um, all of the thalamic circuitry in place to experience pain to the same degree as you and I. Now, every headline or chiron you see from CNN or Planned Parenthood always says the baby can't feel pain until like 25 or 30 weeks. It's not true. People believe that many decades ago. The baby feels pain to the same degree as you and I by about 13 and a half or 14 weeks. And they respond to stimuli in some form by as early as seven or eight weeks, meaning they don't have the full range of experiencing human pain, but they feel and respond to something, a little bit they respond by seven and a half or eight weeks. So you can always ask a pro-choice or say, oh, will you join me then in fighting to end all abortions after 13 and a half weeks, after which the baby can feel the full range of human pain? And they all say, no, they want to keep abortion legal past 13 and a half weeks. Well, then why are you appealing to the ability to feel pain? If you don't believe you can only kill babies who can't feel pain, you believe you should be able to kill them for any reason or no reason at all. But if we can justify killing unborn human beings because they can't feel pain before a certain period, well, is anyone familiar with the condition called congenital analgesia? It's also called congenital insensitivity to pain. 
It's a very rare disease, okay? But it's a condition in which you, you probably guessed it, cannot feel any pain whatsoever. It's actually a very dangerous life for these people to leave, live because they, can, they run into things, they can step on something, cut their wrist, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel it until they see the blood gushing out. Well, hey, like the baby in the womb, before a certain point, they also can't feel any pain. So I guess they're not persons, right? And they have no right to life. And the pro-chaser goes, oh, well, no, of course there's still a person with the right to life. Well, then you can't use the ability to feel pain as a rationale for abortion if you don't apply it consistently outside of the womb. So those are some of the developmental markers that the left uses to say the unborn child is not a person. And I've just illustrated that if you accept that litmus test for personhood, you've just opened up the door to justify killing born people as well who fail to meet that litmus test. Uh, lastly, or uh, in this acronym, size, level of development, and environment. Your location, right? Yes, the unborn child is in a very unique location and environment. It's called a womb. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers, if you didn't know that. That's uh, where we all came from. As Reagan once said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. So the Democrat Party once said that blacks were the property of plantation owners whose land they lived on. And now they say that babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. But where you are has no bearing on who you are. Your location has no relevance to your right to life. And when will we learn the stinking historical lesson that no human being is property? When the left makes a bodily autonomy argument, my body, my choice, they're just telling you that the baby is the property of their mothers. What about dependency? Yes, the unborn child is dependent on their mother, right? And in the first trimester and early second trimester, that baby cannot survive apart from their dependency on their mother. But do we only have value if we're not dependent on someone or something else? Because you see, it's in virtue of being an unborn human being to be dependent on your mother. That's what it means to be a baby. But does that dependency stop after birth? No, if you leave an infant in the crib and you just don't do anything, what will happen? The baby will die. But wait, wait, bodily autonomy. My body, my choice. The woman's breasts are part of her body. So her body, her choice. So if she doesn't nurse her child, why should she be charged with infanticide or parental neglect? Because it's her body, her choice, right? Oh, well, you guys only accept that for discriminating against the unborn baby in the womb, not outside the womb, despite the fact that the baby is just as dependent on mom outside the womb as that baby is dependent on mom in the womb. But if you can kill people because they're dependent on someone or something else, can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, and caretakers? In each circumstance, those people are dependent, like the fetus, on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. So look, the unborn child differs from us as born people in the same ways that we differ from one another. We differ from one another according to our size, our level of development, our location, and our dependency. But our rights remain intact because our rights don't flow from those differences. They flow from our human nature, which we had when we became a human being. So there's no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that we once were in the womb and the adult we are today that would justify killing us at that earlier stage. By the way, Peter Singer the infanticide defender philosopher at Princeton University, who I cited earlier, he actually admits this, that there's no clear line of demarcation that moves the fetus from a non-person with no rights to a person with rights. And he admits that even birth is not a clear line of demarcation that separates unborn babies with no personhood rights to infant persons 
with rights. And here's what he says. He says the liberal search for a morally crucial dividing line between the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to yield any event or stage of development which can bear the weight of separating those with a right to life from those who lack such a right. In other words, this is his high language way of saying what I said earlier, that he admits that his arguments that remove the personhood from the unborn would also be arguments that could be used to remove the personhood and right to life of infants as well. So if we don't ground our human value and right to life in our common human nature, then we're left with a very dangerous philosophical worldview called functionalism. Functionalism, in short, says you don't have rights simply because you're a human being. You have to function in a certain way. Functionalism. So you have to have certain attributes, cognitive abilities, or accidental properties that you can immediately exercise in the present in order to be a person. And functionalism was the worldview that justified slavery, the Holocaust, and even child labor. In each circumstance, the victim class, it was argued, didn't have certain cognitive abilities or functions that made them persons. And Abraham Lincoln, the great abolitionist president in 1854, before his famous debates with Stephen Douglas, maybe you've heard of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Stephen Douglas was the racist Democrat who ran against Lincoln for the 1860 election. And uh, in the preparation for his debates with Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln penned this little, uh, on a piece of parchment, something we still have today, called Fragments on Slavery. And what Lincoln was doing here was he was taking the argument for slavery, and he was illustrating how if you applied that consistently, you could justify mistreating anyone, white or black. Just like I'm saying, any pro-choice argument can also be used to discriminate against or harm any other born person who fails to meet the left's litmus test for personhood. And here's what Lincoln said. He was in an imagined debate, if you will. He was pretending how he would debate a slavery supporter. And here's what he said. He said, you say A is white and B is black. So it is color that the lighter has the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin color fairer than your own. See what Lincoln's saying? He's saying, well, if the argument is skin color, then skin color comes in varying degrees. <laughs> Even us uh, Caucasian folks here, do we have the same shade of skin color? No, it all comes in varying degrees. So if you ground rights on things that come in varying degrees, inevitably rights will therefore come in varying degrees. So Lincoln took the argument for slavery, turned it on its head and said, hey, white racist, that argument can be used to discriminate against you. So the albino rules overall, because he has the palest of skin. Lincoln continues and says, you do not mean color exactly. You mean that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you were to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own because IQ and intellect comes in varying degrees as well. And lastly, Lincoln says, <clears throat> but you say it is a question of interest. And if you, as the slavery supporter, can make it in your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it in his interest, he has the right to enslave you. This is the worldview of functionalism. It grounds personhood and rights, not on the fact that we're all humans, 
but on accidental properties and functions that all come in varying degrees, like intellect, skin color, size, level of development, environment, and dependency, things that we don't have in common. So when you ground rights on properties and things that, don't come, that come in varying degrees, it then follows that rights therefore come in varying degrees. So the equality that the left is seeking through abortion, they actually cannot obtain by making their arguments on philosophies that undermine human equality. When we define human value and acquired properties that are arbitrarily selected by the power class, then human equality is destroyed. Let me cite to you another pro-abortion supporter as I wind down my lecture. Jeff McMahon is one of the top philosophers and defenders of abortion rights. Um, so Peter Singer is one of them, David Boonin is another, and Jeff McMahon. These are almost, it's kind of the secular trinity of pro-abortion philosophers. They're hailed it as the best defenders of the pro-abortion position. And Jeff McMahon makes my point for me in one of his books. He says that the pro-abortion position actually cannot make sense of or defend this idea that we love in America of equality because he admits that the arguments he uses to justify abortion are, are based on properties and functions that we don't share equally. So therefore, how do we argue for this idea of equality between all of us? Here's what he says. He says, all this leaves me profoundly uncomfortable. It seems virtually unthinkable to abandon our egalitarian commitments, our equality commitments. Yet the challenges to our position, the, ch the challenges coming from pro-lifers, the challenges to our position support skepticism about the compatibility of our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree. It is hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on distressingly insecure foundations. I admit with Jeff McMahon, these arguments don't just deny and compromise the equality of unborn human beings, they compromise the equality of all of us. So in closing, three things. The unborn child is a child. Fetus is the Latin word for small child. So if you want to use that word to dehumanize the unborn, I agree with you. They are a small child. They're a human being. They're a homo sapient. Their parents are human. Therefore, they are human. Secondly, the differences between the unborn child and us that are used to deny the unborn rights of personhood are differences found amongst all born people as well. So those pro-choice arguments prove too much. The philosophical term is, is, maybe you've heard it, that's a knife that cuts both ways it proves more than the argument was intended to prove. They end up justifying killing born people who would fail to meet the personhood litmus test that the unborn fails to meet as well. And thirdly, the functions, cognitive abilities, and acquired properties that are arbitrarily selected to disqualify the unborn as a person all come in varying degrees. Therefore, those with a greater capacity for or possession of those functions would be more of a person than those with less. So, I'll end with this admission. I may indeed be wrong, and I'm willing to agree that I am wrong if one of two things can be proven. One, prove that the unborn child is not a human being. Disprove the science of embryology, that whatever a male and female produce through sexual reproduction is actually not a human being. Disprove the science of embryology and the law of biogenesis. Or show why large and developed human beings have a right to life 
while small and dependent ones do not have a right to life. But you're going to have to do this without accidentally justifying the killing of born people at the same time. If neither of those things can be done, then it follows that abortion is bigotry. But not just that, it's the greatest human rights violation in human history. Since 1980, over one and a half billion babies have been aborted through elective abortion worldwide. Over a million babies are murdered through abortion every year in America and around 50 million babies are murdered in the womb every year worldwide in this country. This makes Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin look like toddlers playing in a sandbox. Therefore, abortion, or what I call ageism, like racism and sexism, is bigotry because it discriminates against a whole class of human beings based on immutable characteristics that that victim class has no control over. A victim class that you and I once were unborn children developing in a uterus specifically designed to house and protect us. Even worse, though, when your victim class are babies who are more vulnerable and unable to defend themselves than any other historical victim class. But good news, if you're pro-choice, it's not too late. Like the bigots before you, you can self-correct and embrace human equality, dignity, worth, and the right to life of all human beings. And the pro-life movement eagerly waits to welcome you to a movement of true justice and equality. Thank you. So with the time left, we'll just jump into Q&A if anyone would like to stick around. If you're pro-choice, as it appears many of you are, I'd love to see the courage of your convictions to actually be able to defend your beliefs and offer arguments to the contrary. If you're pro-life, you're free to ask questions to learn more as well. The event was advertised through... Um, 8 o'clock, I believe. So if you'd like to stick around and ask questions, feel free to do so. Sound good, Joshua? No. Okay, cool. Um, we'll just uh, do this respectfully by raise of hands and uh, see if any of you guys have any questions. I had a couple questions. Yeah, what's your name, sir? Quincy. Quincy. Yeah, and yours, yours Seth. Is, what was that? Seth. 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 Oh, Seth. Seth. Thank you, Quincy. Uh -huh. So um, I thought it was interesting um, how you uh, really focused on like embryology When it comes to that, do you not think there's any, you know, uh, societal aspects of when we as a society do determine when life begins because we celebrate celebrate birthdays and not fertilization days? You acknowledge that you are 30 and not 30 and nine months or whatever. So, um, so do you, you not think that there's oh, sorry, a little bit of a disconnect between um, the realities of how we actually live? Um, oh, actually, yeah, there, there actually may be. And so I'm actually willing to embrace China's model of, of acknowledging um, age from the moment of conception, which is actually sort of ironic if you think about it, because like China, they've kind of been about this whole forced abortion and gender side thing. So it's kind of weird that of all the countries, China actually identifies your beginning and age with your conception, not your birth. So my point in bringing up China is just to make the point that different countries do this differently. But it is called a birth, it's not called an age day. So I don't think there's a huge societal disconnect between the science of embryology and how we live when we celebrate your birthday. Um, but I do make jokes sometimes. I say like, you know, I'm, I'm 30 uh, from my birthday, but I'm actually a little bit older. Right? So, so like I'll acknowledge that for sure. But we don't call it age days or beginning days. We call it birthdays. Um, so I don't think there's a huge disconnect there. Any, any follow-up questions there? Yeah. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, I'm Tyrese. Tyrese. Yeah, um, a lot of people, um, a lot of parents get abortions uh, because of financial reasons, 
let's say um, the mother got pregnant and they just cannot afford to have the baby. Hence, if the baby was born, it would have had a pretty bad life um, versus being aborted. Uh, so what do you have to say about that? Well, do you think we should be able to kill toddlers when they get expensive? I mean, no, of course not. But at the same time, it's like the same people arguing for uh, pro-life aren't the same people adopting the babies. Oh, no, that's absolutely false. Yeah, religious Christians adopt more children than any other religious class, or any, or sorry, any other societal class. So whether you, whether that, whether that class identifies with religion or not. So like atheists, agnostics, religious Christians uh, adopt more so than anyone else in the country. And by the way, there are, according to Business Insider a few years ago, <clears throat> there are thirty-six families waiting to adopt for every one infant that there is available. Um, so when we talk about like, oh, these babies are going to be born a horrible life, they're not going to have any other opportunities, um, the adoption is going to be horrible, or the foster care system, which I have, I, we have family members who foster, my wife and I are considering it, but we have blood family members who, who foster, and, and we've helped them through that process, very difficult, I, I acknowledge how horrific the foster care system can be, but if the argument is, well, there's just like no one else available, well, that's just not true, plenty of families waiting to adopt infants, um, and then if the argument is based off of future um, difficulties. Um, well, you, you just have to ask yourself if you would apply that same reasoning to toddlers as well. And if not, then I think that actually says more about your view of the unborn than it does about how society deals with these children, right? Because, well, hey, this two-year-old, his thought, let's just thought experiment, mom and dad just became meth addicts, they're addicted. This child faces a horrific life, but he's two. Should we kill him now to spare him that difficult future? And Tyrese, I know you would say no. So, so my point is, is that why would we accept that type of, oh, but there will have a difficult life, so therefore maybe we should consider abortion. Why would we apply that kind of reasoning for the unborn child if we reject it for the toddler? The only reason we could entertain it in the former and not the latter is if we don't believe the unborn child is a person with rights. So at the end of the day, at the root bottom level, the argument is less about socioeconomics. I'm not saying it's insignificant. I'm saying it's less about socioeconomics and it's more about the question, what is the unborn? They're a human being like us with the same rights, then socioeconomic difficulties can no more be used to justify killing them than they should be used to justify killing toddlers. Um, yes, I saw your hand up. And what was your name? Oh, whoever. <laughs> okay, good. Good to meet you. What, what income? Uh, like, you know, pay to want to leave. Like, you know, you don't need to. You know, you know, you know you, uh, my parents have to go to work. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm sorry with the, with the mask. I'm, I'm missing a few words, but I'm actually very much for considering uh, more programs for um, parental leave, um, specifically for mothers. Um, obviously, uh, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily agree that parent that fathers should have four weeks off. Um, after the baby's been born. But for mothers, I absolutely agree. Uh, and I'd support a shorter for, for fathers as well. But, but so the point, though, is the difference between quality of life issues and protection of life issues, right? We can all agree that we should do what we can to improve quality of life for those already born, right? But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to sacrifice the lives 
of unborn children in order to secure or protect quality of life. And I think it's a false dichotomy to say that we have to pick. And lastly, it's kind of hard to be lectured by people who say that they want to increase quality of life for infants and families when they support lynching unborn children in the womb. Uh, your, your hand, you were waiting. Mine was kind of just back to your point about um, infants in the foster care system. So um, I guess with that point, yes, a lot of people do adopt infants from two years old to newborn, but that's a lot of private adoption, and that's a lot of infants to newborn. But the average number of people in foster care range from age six and up. Oh, totally. Yeah, so it's like a lot of people don't. Really Families are less likely to adopt older children. You're absolutely right. Those children yeah. are more likely it's to harder. You got to sacrifice more, yeah. In our foster care system, it's not as rosy. Well, you you've seen how it is. Our foster care system is not. Oh, it's a mess. Anything romantic at all. So oh yeah. Subjecting those children to that purely because you force somebody to bring that child to the world is like. Well, pause. Well, pause. Pause. Pro-lifers are not forcing anyone to bring a child into the world. There's two ways that that child came into the world: either through consensual sex or an act of violence called rape. So when people say you're forcing this woman to have this baby, you just need to know the pro-lifer's perspective and view is that no, the rapist forced her to have that baby or she chose to entertain the possibility of having that baby when she got in bed because we don't view any moral difference in the value of human beings, whether that child, that baby is in the womb or outside the womb. So I know when I say, when people say forcing to have that baby, I understand that you guys are thinking birth. But remember, if the unborn child is a human being from the moment of conception, who is an actual human being that's gradually unfolding their potential, just like we're all actual human beings right now, gradually unfolding our potential, then the value is the same. And if the value is the same, then that baby is already a baby, despite the fact that they're in the womb. And so the response would be, no, pro-lifers aren't forcing her to have that baby. The rapist did, or she did when she got in bed. And parents are supposed to sacrifice to protect the rights of children the rights of their born children, and the right to life of their unborn children. Um, you were waiting patiently, yeah. Yeah, um, I actually don't have a question. I just, I need to leave, but I just really want a picture with you. So you can make it okay, okay, sure, sure. Um, uh, what was your question? I think you were holding up your hand. Oh, me? I, no, I think this gentleman was. So, um, I guess just for clarification, so you're saying, well, are you saying, when, say a woman gets raped by somebody, so that's obviously not something that she wants to Right. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. So sure. She got raped, but since you're saying that that uh, what's it called, the baby is from the very beginning, she should be forced, or she should be continue to bring that baby that she had no intention of having in the first place to full term. Right. Totally difficult. Absolutely horrific. Let me start by saying that um, I find it very interesting yeah. that conservatives and pro-lifers. Um, support harsher, harsher penalties and more justice for that victim of sexual assault than the Democrat Party and the left does writ large. Um, you guys need to know this if you don't already. The Democrat Party is the political party behind shortening prison sentences, um, behind springing people from the clink beforehand, um, before shortening ba uh, bail and prison sentences. So a lot of these rapists, um, they're actually guilty for other crimes. So I think it's just common sense Americans, I think our gut reaction should be, why are they on the street? Now, are some rapists committing the first crime? Sure. But sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it's multiple rapes. And I can't, I do not know, and I'd be willing to be corrected, I don't know the example of a single rapist 
um, who has raped one woman who has gotten a life in prison sentence and never, never capital punishment. So I just want to start by addressing the, the rape ob objection and, and difficult issue by saying that if we want justice for that woman who is brutally abused, we ought to support harsher penalties against rapists, which is why I support castrations or life in prison. Um, the Democrat Party does not. So it's very interesting that they were the party of hashtag me too, uh, and yet they want to enable those, those rapists to get back on the street by shortening their prison sentences. So I have more compassion for the victim of rape than the left does because I support harsher penalties against that rapist. Um, secondly, abortion and rape are wrong for the same reasons. Rape intentionally harms and attacks an innocent human being without proper justification. Amen? Abortion intentionally harms and attacks an innocent human being without proper justification. There's no justification for it. You can have the baby, give the baby up for adoption, but you pay someone to kill that child in the womb. What's worse, getting raped or getting murdered? I think all of us would say probably murdered, um, except when we're talking about the baby in the womb, suddenly everyone's okay with murdering that unborn baby. If the mother is not allowed to murder her rapist who is guilty, which you, you guys know she can't right in America, you can't just like go murder your rapist legally. Now, maybe we would say morally, you know, like certainly an act of self-defense, totally. But I'm just saying as a matter of law, if a woman cannot murder her rapist who is guilty, why should she be able to murder her unborn child who is just as innocent as she is? So the rapist is the only guilty party. So I want to punish the guilty party and I want to protect the innocent human beings, the mother and the unborn child. We shouldn't murder children for the crimes of their father. And when you say that an unborn baby conceived in rape should be killed, I'm sorry, but that's what you're saying. The baby should be forced to suffer or be killed for the crimes of their father. Uh, yes, you were waiting, patient. Um, with that being said, I think that, so from when you say that, from rapists, because rape is, if you conceive a baby through rape, when you have, if you're, and I don't like to use the word force, because like you said, you guys aren't forcing us to have a baby. But when you are having that baby, you are attached to that rapist for life. You are constantly reminded of that rapist for life. For life. As long as that child lives, that rapist lives with you. You constantly see the rapist face on you. That's traumatic in a sense to you and the child. No matter what you say, every time you look at the child, you're always going to see the rapist. Well, I would pause you there when you said, and traumatic to the child. Um, I actually think that's incredibly evil and offensive. I know many human beings who are alive today that were conceived in rape. And they're very, very grateful for their life. And they're very grateful to be alive. So to make the judgment a priori that the, the babies conceived in rape have a traumatic life, um, I would actually say is, is, is pretty bigoted and offensive. I know dozens of people who were conceived in rape. They're wonderful, beautiful human beings who, who are very glad that they weren't killed for the crimes of their father. But, but the question for you would be this, and then I'll totally let you go. The question would be this. How should we treat human beings that remind us of painful events? Because I actually agree with you. The woman very likely may be reminded, especially if she raises the child, of the horrific um, experience that she went through through sexual assault. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not um, denying that that's a very real and difficult traumatic situation. What I'm asking is how should we be allowed to treat human beings that remind us of painful events? So here's an example. Um, in the 50% chance that the baby looks like the rapist, right? Might look like mom, so maybe she won't be as traumatized, right? Um, but could look like the rapist. Let's, let's, let's just paint the scenario, because it happens in America. Let's, let's say that, that that baby looks like scarily identical face to the rapist. 
the mom chooses life because she's hoping that the baby will look like her, but she was wrong. And through the first two years of this child's development, it's just, the baby starts looking more and more like the rapist. Now, I, don't, now I, I have two kids. Uh, maybe you guys have younger siblings or nieces. You, you probably remember, like, when a baby's born, everyone's like, Who, what parent does it look like? <laughs> and then, like, sometimes people say the mom and the dad. But then, like, a year later, like, it's, it's switched. And, like, the baby actually looks more like dad now. Like, this totally happens to that with my kid. So, so let's just say, for the sake of argument, um, that the mom keeps the baby in the hopes that the baby will look like her. Um, and they wait a couple years because they think facial structure might change. And, and then maybe the baby will look like mom. Ah, two and a half years old, this baby looks exactly like the rapist dad. Should she be allowed to decapitate her infant and her toddler? Because you know what? We need to be able to kill babies that, remi- that remind us of painful events in order to, to spare the mother the traumatic experience of being reminded of her rape. I know I'm being a little bit facetious because I know you would say no. In the similar argument with, uh, with uh, 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 Tyrese earlier, I was saying, do you apply that kind of reasoning to justify killing toddlers or infants? And I ask that knowing you'll say no, because I know you guys have somewhat of a functioning moral compass. Um, but we don't apply that in the womb. Why don't we apply that in the womb? Why should we be allowed to kill unborn children that might remind us of painful events, but not toddlers that might remind us of painful events? And the answer is obvious, is that if you're pro-choice, you don't believe the unborn child is a person with rights. So let's talk about that and not about the circumstances of rape. And lastly, what I'll say is the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, remember Alan Guttmacher, former president of Planned Parenthood from the 70s, they report in their latest reporting that half of a percent of the annual abortions are performed in cases where the woman was raped. I'm willing to admit that not all cases of rape are reported, so maybe it's a little higher, but here's my question. Will you join me, guys, in fighting to end the, 90%, the 99% of all other abortions that aren't from cases of rape? Will you join me in helping make, make those illegal? No. No, no you no, won't. So, so you're hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look oh, more no, compassionate. No, no, I, I like you're using rape victims to make your position look more intellectually tenable. No. My point is, is my, I'm just, no, I'm just saying, if you guys believe that abortion should be allowed in nearly every circumstance, why are you appealing to the rape exception if you actually believe she should be able to get an abortion even if it wasn't rape? Oh, we were just on that topic. My point wasn't just on rape victims. I think even if you have positions that say at 23 years old and are married and want to have an abortion, you should have the right to have an abortion. Right. So so what I'm saying is then the status, which means the heart of the matter, the root of the debate is not the circumstances that lead to pregnancy or abortion. It's the status of the unborn child, because you believe that abortion should be allowed in virtually any circumstance, not just in circumstances of rape. So let's talk about why writ large the unborn child has no personhood rights in your view. You are being patient, sir. Yeah. Enforcement, you said? Yeah, because if you don't make it illegal, you gotta have enforcement. You think enforcement is kind of violence because police is not a peaceful force, let's be honest. When it comes to guns, tasers, stuff like that. Right, so know? don't break the law. Yeah, yeah I just wonder, I just wonder right. how you gonna enforce that. Yeah, so if abortion is made, so as you guys know, the um, Supreme Court <clears throat> is ruling on the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization out of Mississippi, yeah. which is a 15-week abortion ban called the Gestational Age Act. If they allow the Mississippi um, ban to stand, that is a functional overturning of Roe, um, right? Because Roe and Doe, by the way, Doe versus Bolton and Roe versus Wade together allowed abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. Um, and so if that happens, uh, abortion actually wouldn't become illegal at the federal level. Um, you guys seem pretty educated. You know that it would go back to the states, um, and so the more conservative states um, would enact abortion bans. Or if they have abortion bans pre-Roe, 
right, pre-1973, then those bans would just go back into place. And then the blue states, like my home state of California, are pushing to become what they're calling sanctuary states for abortion. Of course, I call it sanctuary states for killing babies. Um, by the way, including things like using California taxpayer dollars um, to pay for the travel expenses of women coming out of um, more red states, like their gas, their hotel, their food, the abortion, and their babysitting for their toddlers back at home while they kill their toddler siblings. Some of the things that they're pushing in California to create a sanctuary state for killing babies using my taxpayer dollars to do it. But how do you do it? Um, well, yeah, if a state bans abortion, then you shut down the abortion clinic. You do it like you would any other person that's breaking the law. In terms of, and because I know you probably your follow-up question, if I don't address it, I definitely want your follow-up, okay? I'm not trying to um, ramrod you. I'm not trying to speak over you. Um, in, in, let's say uh, you, a woman gets an abortion, right? The, the pro-life movement has always held the position that we don't go after the, um, the user, we go after the supplier. <laughs> it's the same sort of uh, way that the left, by the, by the way, fights uh, the drug wars. Um, they went after the supplier. Uh, not the users necessarily. So the pro-life movement has taken a similar position uh, on abortion when abortion is made illegal, which is that the abortionist is the person killing the baby. So the abortionist would be charged with murder. Um, and then the woman obtaining and paying for the abortion um, would be treated as an accomplice to murder in the same way that a parent who might pay someone to kill her toddler would not be off the hook legally because you paid someone to kill your toddler, so you're an accomplice to murder. Um, but there would have to be what's called a meeting of minds, and that is in the court. It would have to be illustrated that the understanding of the abortion operation in the mind of the woman matched the understanding of the abortionist. And the reason for this, and I'll end my point here, is that there's a lot of misinformation and miseducation in the culture regarding, one, the humanity of the unborn child and prenatal development, and two, how abortions are actually performed. And so, for example, we wouldn't necessarily go after a 15-year-old whose boyfriend threatened uh, to leave her and pressured her to get an abortion, and she lived in a state where you could get a judicial bypass law, so you didn't even have to have your parental consent, which is crazy. You can't get Advil at your junior high school in America or go on a field trip without parental consent, but in some states, you can actually get an abortion and kill your parent's grandchild without parental consent. We wouldn't necessarily treat that 15-year-old who, at four weeks, who just found out she was pregnant, and believed the lies of her leftist biology teacher that it was an insensate blob of tissue, the same as we would treat a woman with a full understanding of what she'd done. But we would go after the abortionist to answer your question. But murder is still murder is still murder. Even if a 15-year-old was still pregnant to go under an abortion, wouldn't that by your definition she should still be charged, or at least the abortionist should still be charged by murder? The, yes, the abortionist, correct. The abortionist is the one be, killing the baby. And then there should be an accomplice charge on the 15-year-old for wanting to go through with murder? I, I, I just explained yeah. how the situation in the courts that you would have to have a meeting of minds to illustrate that her understanding of the abortion matched that of the abortionist. And so there would be, I think, some probably leniency in the law between how you treat a 15-year-old who got an abortion based off of lies and the pressuring of her father or boyfriend and a 21-year-old um, who got an abortion with a full understanding of, of what happened. Well, but, but law is a teacher. Law teaches. Yeah, sure. And but, so, but with most other crimes, right? Like if I were an underage person and I just happened to be driving someone who uh, went ahead and went and robbed the store. I personally didn't rob the store. My buddy did. But I would still go to jail for driving away even if I had nothing to do with that. I'm still an accomplice to the crime even if I did not commit it. I actively admitted in it even if there wasn't in the meeting of mine. So how does the law... 
Yeah, and so Texas is actually doing that right now. Um, the Texas law is very interesting in its sort of legal strategy is it sort of deputizes private citizens to file civil lawsuits against people involved in an abortion. And the reason I bring it up is it actually fits what you just brought up, which is that um, including people like those who might drive her to get the abortion or pay for it so could, have, along, could have a lawsuit as well. So everybody along the track should be taken to civil or criminal court. In Texas, they're doing civil. I'm in, what in you a, want to do. Yeah, in, in, you're in analogue, uh, because you're making the analogy to murder. So I'm just yeah, in a justice criminal court. Right, in a just society would be a criminal court. But we've had 49 years of legalized abortion. It's gonna be. It's gonna take some time to rebuild a, a legal culture of life in America. All right. Yeah. I got two two um, She was waiting really patient, so I'll go. I'll go back to you if that's okay. Go ahead, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple questions. First thing, I just want to confirm something that you said. So you think that if a woman has sex, she should accept that she may become pregnant? Right, just like if you eat 20 Krispy Kremes a day, it's a consent to obesity. Okay, so you're saying that a woman should either be celibate for the rest of her life, or you should force her to become a mother. So how is you... I'm not forcing her to become a mother. When you have sex, you, 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 um, you consent to the possibility of becoming a mother. Let me finish my question. So you're either saying that a woman should never have sex again, or she should be a mother. So how do you, how is you as a man saying what a woman should be able to do with her life? How is that not oppression? How is that different from when you said during your speech that racist and sexist people don't realize what they're doing while they're doing it? Isn't that not exactly what you're doing right now by looking me in the eyes and saying that I should either never have sex again or forced to become a mother for the rest of my life, taking control over my life in that way? Yeah, so it, it be, here's the answer, because it's not sexist to say that you don't get to kill preborn females. So do you have any problem with abortions that are sought after specifically because the unborn baby is a female, gender-side abortions? Do you have any problem with that? Because if the fetus has no right to the mother's body, it wouldn't matter the reason that that abortion was sought, including if the reason was because the parents didn't want a girl, like it's been happening in China for decades. So do you have any problem with gender-side abortions? I have a problem with the idea that... Yes or no? Do you have any problem with abortion sought after specifically because the parents don't want a baby, a female baby? Yeah, you're deflecting, so you should let me answer my question. Because I would like more women in the world, so I don't want gender-side abortions. Go ahead. I have a problem with the idea that women shouldn't be allowed to be alive just because they're a woman, but we're not even talking about that. We're talking about laws in America, and I'm talking about a woman's right to be able to choose what she wants to do with her life. Right, you don't get to use your body or your life to murder others, so that would be the answer. And as a pre-born, uh, former pre-born male, um, I had a right to life in the womb as well, which is why abortion is not a woman's issue, it's a human issue. And by the way, uh, under, under, pro-life undercover groups have done excellent reporting uh, where they go into Planned Parenthood abortion centers and they specifically say things like, uh, we want to get a, we want to determine the gender of the baby because we really want a boy. We've been trying to get pregnant with a boy. So we just want to know, because if it's a girl, we want to have an elective abortion. And in every circumstance, these undercover videos have been taken. The abortion clinic is like, oh, yeah, we're happy to do that. So, so it's not just China. That's obviously the greatest example. Obviously, we all know that. But I'm asking you, because you brought up sexism, do you have a problem with sexist abortions and unborn females who are targeted for dismemberment specifically because of their gender? So is that wrong? So that's a deflection of the point. No, it's not. Is it wrong? Is it wrong? To kill people in the womb because they're women. It is wrong, not because, like, you, uh, saying that because we must allow abortion, therefore we must allow gender, like, you know, specific abortions. That crosses an entirely different line. 
So the fetus has no right to her body. But the reason you kill the baby in the body could be wrong. Because Strange. It's actually, because you could actually just leave it up to the doctor's choice. It is dependent on because in practicality, right? These moral arguments are interesting to say the least. But when we look at the actual statistics, there are like so few cases, at least here in the United States, where people actually go in for elective abortions. You found a recording of it. Good. Show me statistical evidence. What we can say is that when we look into the stats behind uh, the net utility of abortion, we could actually see that, for example, um, I, I don't know if uh, you brought up the point, but uh, a bans on abortion don't decrease the number of abortions. It's sure they do. In states, and actually sure they in do. states where, no, it, it actually doesn't when you look at the stats. I, I implore you, I implore you to actually find statistics that support Sure, let's talk about the stats. Would you like to? Yeah, or would you just like to grandstand? I actually have a fact sheet. Do you want to read it? Okay, so, so according to Marianne Warren, one of the foremost pro-abortion philosophers pre-Roe and, and after Roe, but pre-1973, yeah. she did evaluations on the annual median averages of abortions that were happening before abortion was legal. Mm -hmm. And there was about a 98,000 median, okay, 98,000 average of illegal annual abortions in America. Mm -hmm. um, what was the annual um, average in 74, 75, 76? 1.5 to 1.6 million. Oh, look, law influence behavior. Wait, wait, so, of no, course, no, 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 laws no, 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 decrease no, 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 abortions. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> that proves my point. Wait, wait, yeah, wait, wait, no, wait. wait. So, the point. rate of abortions has been going down. I actually know the study you're talking about, but there was actually a counter, st I, uh, but there was actually a counter study that released where it, it was actually more contraceptive protections from employer-based health care is actually what caused the deep and um, more, what was it called, less... Uh, what is it called, like celibacy-based sexual education is actually the reason why abortion uh, abortions have been going down throughout time. Uh, if the, it's, it, hold on, my phone dropped. I got to So it. is your contention, just to clarify, <clears throat> that, um, so my I understand your position, is, is that, that pro-life laws don't decrease abortions, right, so we shouldn't implement them? not encompass the full picture. There's a lot of other socioeconomic conditions, right? The best way that we could actually reduce abortions, because I, I kind of agree with you, I think abortion's kind of a murky issue, I'd rather not. The best way to do it is to actually have um, single-payer health care to have free and equitable access to all forms of contraceptives and care, both at employer levels, at the state level, um, and also uh, another important uh, thing that we should do is we should actually focus more so on, um, uh, what is it called, uh, women's employment and legal protections. Uh, because a lot of what happened, uh, because a lot of uh, sexual assault cases, uh, women end up don't having the resources to actually uh, combat these things um, and to okay. have adequate protection. So I, I agree, pro-life laws don't, don't stop all abortions. I never made that contention. It will drastically reduce them because uh, law does influence behavior. Um, but if your case is that uh, law, because laws, pro-life laws don't stop all abortions and women will seek them anyways, mm -hmm. then passing laws against abortion is misguided. I just have a question for you. Do you think that we should stop um, having laws against rape because men still rape women despite the fact that we have laws against rape? Maybe we should have taxpayer state counseling for men to deal with the underlying issues of men's psychology that lead them to beat their wives in the first place because you know that will be a better uh, nanny state solution to decreasing instances of rape. Of course you're all saying no. You would say it's very good to have laws against rape. So you want laws against rape to 
despite the fact that it doesn't prevent all rapes. But you don't want laws against abortion despite the fact that it doesn't stop all abortions because you guys are bigots. You don't believe the unborn child in the womb is a person, but you do believe the woman being a raped is a person with rights. Therefore, she deserves legal protection. <laughs> I don't want to reduce abortions. I want to ban them. I want to ban them. I don't want to reduce them. I'll celebrate if they get reduced, but I'm seeking banning it. The reason why we don't want bans in abortion is because banning abortion it, it only solves like symptoms of the problem rather than So does laws against rape. Itself. It only uh, solves the symptoms of men's psychology. If we but want the, the underlying issue not, of why men rape why women, rape. what is leading but, these degenerate men to do that in the first place, man? The we got to deal with their underlying psychology. They need to get into state counseling programs. Of course not. What a stupid thing to say. You want to you want to stop all laws against rape. You want to legalize rape is what you're saying. No, but you but you do want to legalize all abortions because you don't believe the baby in the womb is as much of a person as those outside the womb. So you have born privilege. You have born privilege. You weren't aborted in the womb, but you want to murder others in the womb. Yeah, but drug laws didn't say you could intentionally kill innocent people. Yeah, abortion is something. Abortion laws do say that. Just like abortion forces itself onto preborn people. Right. That's a different moral argument. So rape abuses the bodies of innocent women, and abortion abuses the bodies of innocent unborn women. But you guys don't view the unborn child as equally valuable. We cannot make an assertion. You cannot do that tangent, man. <laughs> I see, because I'm, I'm exposing your bigotry, which you guys call equity. So it's very difficult for you to reconcile the fact that you have, dis you have different solutions to tyranny outside the womb than you do to tyranny in the womb. Because you don't treat the unborn child as a bearer of rights. When did you guys have rights? When would it have been wrong for me to kill you? During birth? Or right after birth? Or when? I, 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 sorry, I can't hear anyone right now. Uh, you were waiting very patiently on the end. Oh, no, no, she was waiting for a long time. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I can't hear anyone when everyone's speaking. Go ahead. No, not at all. No, it's a very, it's a very rare condition, and even in, even in that circumstance, it's still either XX or XY. But, but what's your question? Yeah. 
difference between sex and gender is often combined thinking that's the same thing when it's not hard to disrespect or it's hard to uh, disrespect people go your way to disrespect people but people that are going through the proper uh, transitions uh, <coughs> to feel like themselves which you have no experience with it, it just hurts so let me ask you a question and relate it to abortion with what you said. If um, gender dysphoria was something objectively discovered um, in the human body, would you be opposed to parents who sought out abortion specifically because they didn't want a trans child? Discriminatory abortions based off of a gay gene or trans identification or gender, gender dysphoria in the womb? I, I would think you'd probably say no, so why? Because the unborn child has a right to life? In which case, I guess you'd have to become pro-life. I think a fallacy that you're doing is that you think abortion is an all-or-nothing game, kind of like the case with trans health care. It's a very involved process. No, just like you either have a right to life or you don't. So it is no, all-or-nothing. No, 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 no. I really hate this black and white thinking. We can't. It is black and white. You're being forced to realize that. It is entirely feasible for someone to be supportive of abortions, but still wants to have. Uh, regulations on whether or not we have... It's okay to kill a baby abortion. when... We, end the sentence. It is okay to, to kill a baby when... It is okay to seek an abortion... To kill a baby. What's an abortion? The intentional killing of an innocent unborn baby. Okay. But you can't have... It's okay to kill a baby when... Tell me. When. So you can kill a baby when... <laughs> is that what you're looking for? So you can, so you can seek an abortion um, effectively when the mother decides not to want to have that child but the thing is that decision has to be carried out by both legal, legal so one's value is defined by their wantedness so what the nazis said they called the jews undesirables today that's that phrase is unwanted you define value based on wantedness if the mother doesn't want the baby you don't believe it has rights gender of the child you cannot seek an abortion based on whatever like genetic markers or whatnot these are legal and ethical and uh, medical decisions that we can take. It's not an all or nothing thing. And also I want to tackle the person. It is. Because so you either have a right to life so or you don't. So you're saying that a baby's a person, right? Yeah. Like it's a person. Babies are persons. All humans do, are. Have you ever met a human that's not a person, by the way? Have you ever met a human that's not a person? Do you have any pictures on your phone of human non-persons? Because I've never met a human that's not a person. have constitutional protections like can a baby own the right to have a gun? <laughs> so you're conflating positive law with natural law. So if I go to England, um, I don't have a right to vote in the next British election because I'm not a citizen of that fine nation. Because voting is because I'm not a British citizen, so I don't have that legal right. However, I do have a right to not be gunned down in the street the next time I visit London because I have a natural right to life whether whichever country I find myself in, but I don't have a legal right to vote because I'm not a British citizen. We don't allow 15-year-olds, uh, well, unless you get a permit at 15 and a half, at yeah. least in California, but we don't let 13 or 14-year-olds drive. And I agree with so you. you're conflating certain legal or positive rights with natural rights, and I'm saying of all natural rights, the first no, and no. most significant is the right to life. No, I'm not, because the... You just because, said, should babies be able to drive or own firearms? No, because that's a legal right. The that are put in the Bill of Rights are quite literally part of the ethos of the founders, natural rights that people have, and the entire reason that they are in the Bill of Rights is not that they are a positive right, 
but it is an assertion that the government can never impede on these natural rights. And Specifically, the right to life. And when you're pro-abortion, you remove the right to so life of babies in the womb. So does the fetus have the right to free speech as part of their natural rights? Do they have the sure, they, rights yes. to be able to mm -hmm. bear Because they have the potential. Just like an infant cannot exercise free speech. Okay, you're making incredibly stupid arguments and you know it. What I'm infants cannot speak because they're infants. Do they have the right to free speech in the future when they get language? Yes, but they can't speak right now, okay? But infants still have a right to life. And if you kill your infant, you're charged as the parent for killing them. If a fetus can't exercise these natural rights, then is it really a person? That's basically the entire argument. Infants, how do infants exercise their right to life? How do infants exercise their right to life? An infant cannot exercise their right to life. But they still have it. They still have it because they're a human being, as does the unborn human being. A fetus cannot exercise natural rights to life because a fetus cannot autonomously exercise their natural rights. Neither can an infant. Neither can an infant. An infant can have natural rights. As can an unborn child, despite the fact that neither of them can exercise it in the present because they have the potentiality as a human being who's unfolding their potential gradually, but it's an actual human being from the moment of conception. But the potentiality of being a person... I have the potentiality of a 40-year-old's mental development because men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. I haven't realized that full potentiality, but I'm still a whole human being with rights now. There are plenty of different capacities that children prepubescent children, teenagers, and young adults have not fully realized because they haven't reached the age of development wherein they're developed enough to realize that potentiality. But they have the potentiality in virtue of being a human being, and they became a human being at the moment of conception. So apparently you guys believe in a fetus fairy that sprinkles personhood-conferring fairy dust on the child during the six-inch journey through the birth canal, because I haven't heard anyone here defend the murder of infants directly after birth. But you do support abortion which is the killing of the same baby six inches away in the womb. So what was so significant about this six inch journey through the birth canal? It's the development process. It's not a fully that development doesn't stop. It's not a, it's not a fully developed human being. Neither am I. <laughs> Neither are you. I, I had some buddies in, in, uh, in college who their biggest growth spurt was after they got to college. That was when they, they grew the most. But we're all developing still, man. Doesn't mean that we're less valuable because we're still yeah, developing. Yeah, there are certain points of the development stage with which we attribute personhood, right? Right, and, like, they're, sure, and so they're arbitrary. Why do we attribute personhood to them? Give me a reason as to why those differences matter in the first place to ground personhood. Wait, repeat the question. Wait, wait, are you asking the You, you, you said you, you talked about attributes we select that we link to personhood, right? Wait, and well, I'll repeat that. Somebody... Did you say certain attributes that we link to personhood? No. I say what did you that say? the stage with which we declare personhood is somewhat arbitrary. We naturally want to tie it to biological markers. But at the end of the day, like think about a thousand years ago when, um, for example, like Greeks thought um, that people in like, you know, Northern Europe weren't even human. They shouldn't even be classified as people. So right, like what you're doing to the baby to, now. Nowadays, sure. we would say that even though they're like, uh, like back then, they say even if they recognized that they were like, you know, Homo sapiens, they still wouldn't give personhood to these people. What I'm trying to say is that personhood is. What I'm trying to say is that personhood is something with which we attribute to someone, attribute to people, rather than something that comes out biologically. 
Right. And I'm saying, I'm saying you're in very dangerous, murky historical waters because we have tons of examples of societies that arbitrarily selected certain cognitive abilities or the immediate exercise of certain functions. And they said, that makes one a person. Now, they didn't give any reasons as to why those, uh, those accidental properties and functions were value giving in the first place. They merely assumed it, right? So uh, it was once assumed that women were the property of their husbands. Men could cheat on their wives, but women couldn't cheat on their husbands without being killed by their husbands. And, and uh, husbands could beat their wives without any legal recourse. Jews were described as non-persons. Black people were described as non-persons. Indians were described as non-persons. We would all agree that the personhood litmus test employed by the elite were arbitrary, that they didn't really matter to the question of rights. You have come up with a new arbitrary measure for the litmus test for personhood for the preborn. So I still haven't gotten an answer as to what is it about preborn children that you guys hate so much? And, and what is it that they're lacking in that you say must be realized or developed before they magically get these personhood right to life? Now, we've been engaging for a while, so out of, out of respect, I just want to jump and then we can come back. So, oh gosh, I don't even know. Yes, right, you, were, you had your hand up. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You're right, I was looking over here. I just got to ask uh, yeah, I, I think we should make the death penalty great again. Yeah, yeah. and now, yeah. you got me, oh, right, because nobody, the answer is nobody, the answer is nobody snuck an AK-47 into the womb, and if you don't see the difference between an innocent baby and a murderous rapist who gets capital punishment, I got nothing for you. Statistically, about 2% of people put on death row are later proven to be given innocent. Right. It's just statistically, if we have the, the death penalty, some people who are innocent are going to get Sure. Them. Actually, I appreciate that. What was your name? Um, I go by me. Okay. Um, I actually appreciate that, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm aware of this. And so I'm, I'm actually willing to say, and I've said this publicly many times, that, uh, that unless it can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, which is probably language you'd agree with, then I wouldn't agree with the death penalty because of some of these atrocious circumstances where we learned later the person was innocent. Well, see, I so, so, I, so, yeah. I, 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 and I think we can do better to put in better measures um, with which to establish clarity or doubt such that if there's any level of doubt, you shouldn't pursue it. But they're fundamentally different issues because I'm... No, it's fundamentally different. No, it is, it is different, and here's why. Because that's not my argument tonight. That's not, Okay, hold on. Hold on, guys. I can't even hear anyone. This is my argument. It's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore abortion is wrong. My argument tonight and the pro-life movement's argument is not it's always wrong to intentionally kill people. It's that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. By virtue of being on death row, except for the cases where we could try to meet together to make sure that, that innocent people are never given capital punishment, the person being killed on death row is, by definition, not innocent. So it's a fundamentally different issue. No it's not the argument I'm making. Any bureaucracy is going to have errors within it. Sure. Every, there was always going, no matter how hard you try to make sure that everybody put on death row is guilty, there are going to statistically... But it doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, I'm just saying, if you want to be morally consistent, to be truly pro-life, to ensure the most life, you should get rid of the death penalty. Keep it at a life... But that's not my argument tonight. I'm saying it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, and specifically babies in a womb designed to hold them from which what we all came, who are being ripped apart in the womb because their mothers or fathers have defined them as unwanted. Fundamentally different issue. Also, uh, yes, go ahead. Me? Uh, either one of you, sorry. You, you both had your hand up for so long. I'm what sorry. What did you mean when you said that you don't care about reducing abortions, you care about banning them? I said I would celebrate any redu reduction in the abortion rate, but my goal and the pro-life movement's goal is actually not to reduce abortions. The goal of the pro-life movement is to make them illegal and unthinkable. So your goal is 
not to reduce abortions. We'll no, celebrate that if we get it, but yeah, it's not our goal. Less abortions, which you're describing here as evil or whatever you're saying they are. You want right because they're babies and all women. that. Yeah. That's you said it's more important for you to be able to control women than actually reducing abortions. Right by stopping the fifty percent of abortions which control preborn women's bodies by ripping them apart. Right. So so the question is, is when did the unborn uh, woman's reproductive rights begin? When did your bodily autonomy begin? Did it begin in the womb or did it begin when you magically went through the personhood conferring birth canal? I'm gonna be honest. When I was like a one week old fetus, I wasn't a human. Oh, no, I didn't Actually, that. no, that's anti-science. Human life begins at the moment of conception. I didn't have a brain you can a deny it as much as you want. The unborn baby does not require a brain to be a human. It's developing it in the process. And anyway, the point of the fact is you just admitted that you care more about controlling and oppressing women than reducing abortions. So you really shouldn't be out here yeah, You can You can paint my argument however you'd like. However, you defend ripping apart little women in the womb. And I, I can't think of anything head. that's more anti-feminist than that. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, if I'm developing to be an NFL player, a, a what player? NFL. If I'm developing oh. to be an NFL player, am I an NFL player? <laughs> like if I wasn't hard training. Okay. 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 Here we go. Wait, like this is a, this is a university, the academy. Okay. Uh, if I'm developing into a teenager, but I'm a toddler, am I a teenager? If I'm developing into a toddler, but I'm an infant, am I a toddler? No, of course not, because we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the okay. continuum called human development. But the process of human development, you want to know when it began? When we became human. You so, want to know when we became human? So Follow the science back to the moment of conception. So if I'm so. for a second, I'm not that yet, am I? Correct. You are not, uh, I would assume you're not a 40-year-old man yet. I guess I just assumed your age, but uh, yeah. So, but you're developing into a 40-year-old man, Correct. And we have different terms that we refer to people at different developmental markers. So we don't call toddlers infants and we don't call teenagers toddlers. But those are terms referring to the same human being at a different point in their physical development. We do what? We do give people human rights at different times of development, right? Right, back to what was brought up earlier, certain legal rights. Like we give the certain legal right to own a firearm. Well, I mean, uh, it used to be 18 for a gun. I think in California, it's 21 for a, a rifle or a handgun. Now we give the legal right to drive and get a license at 16, a permit at 15 and a half. But you and I would all agree that the 15 and a half year old still has a right to life, despite the fact they don't have the developmental right to drive yet. So you're, conf you're conflating positive rights with natural rights. What, yeah, what's your name? My name is Kameem. Kameem? Yeah, what, what's your question? What do you mean by that? Because um, whenever you ban abortion, you make it illegal. In many circumstances, women will still get pregnant, but they'll search out other ways to resolve an issue of not having. So, like in any in illegal abortion, assuming it's yeah, made illegal. Like illegal abortion, but so in the face of this risk, should there not be like a concerted efforts otherwise than abortion simply? Yeah, good, good point. I appreciate you brought that up. I, I thought this one was going to get brought up earlier. Um, so 
Marianne, Marianne Warren has a very interesting response to what you just said about if abortion is made illegal, women will seek out dangerous illegal abortions anyways. So we have to think through those considerations. And Marianne Warren, by the way, is one of the foremost pro-abortion philosophers. Uh, and I find it, in, I, of course, I'm going to cite people who disagree with me to bolster my own points. But I find it interesting that she actually thinks of all the arguments as a pro-abortion philosopher. She thinks that of all the arguments for pro-choicers to pick, um, that one is the worst. Um, and she says, the fact that restricting access to abortion has tragic side effects does not in itself show that the restrictions are unjustified since murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of forbidding it. So what she's saying is if the pro-lifers are right and the unborn child is a human being with the same rights, then the fact that restricting access to that abortion has tragic side effects, namely that women get illegal, dangerous back alley abortions, it doesn't show that the restrictions are unjustified because murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of forbidding it. So I agree with her. I think it's actually a pretty weak pro-choice argument. But for the sake of that argument, um, what that argument is really saying is that because some people die trying to kill others, the state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Um, so because some people die, who would be some people die? The mother might die in an illegal abortion trying to kill others, whose others? The unborn child. The state should make it safe and legal for them to do so. Um, we would never accept that reasoning as applied to any other moral scenario. For example, you got, let's say you have two bank robbers, I don't know, in Atlanta who have robbed a couple banks. They're trying, to, they're trying to pull off a third heist. As they're running out with bags of cash, a law-abiding citizen, a good Samaritan, who with a concealed carry permit, pulls out his handgun and he shoots one of the um, bank robbers and the, his buddy leaves them bleeding out on the sidewalk and he takes the bags of cash. So you now have a bank robber who did something illegal and immoral. He harmed people and he stole money um, to rob a bank. And he is now almost dead because he did something both illegal and immoral. So you know what the solution is, right? We need to legalize bank robbery because some people are getting harmed or killed in the process of trying to harm or kill others. Now, we would never, we would never accept that application of that same reasoning, but, but some reason we accept it for the unborn child because we don't view them as, having, as say, being the same bearer of rights. But yes, some women will seek out dangerous back alley abortions. Which is where, according to you? Well, we want, well, first of all, you, you said at the moment of conception that that's whenever life, that's whenever you're considering human considering human life. So contraception in itself is murder. Do you believe that? But, um, whoa, 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 hold on. Abort, abortifacient methods would be um, wrong because they could or aim to end the life of a human being that has already come into existence. But condoms or diaphragms, um, I mean, that's, those are not abortifacient. They're, they're preventative, yeah. Okay, but, uh, so what would we do, if, you're saying, if we made it illegal, wh where are the facilities or um, options for these women who now have to carry their children to term? Yes. That's your question. Yeah, so there are between 2,700 and 3,000 pregnancy resource centers in this country. They outnumber abortion clinics two to one. Um, there's, a, there's about 760-ish, last I checked, abortion uh, clinics in the country. Um, actual centers. Some hospitals perform abortions, as you guys probably know. So abortion providers, period, the, the number's bigger, but you're talking about standing abortion clinics, about 750 in the country. So pregnancy resource centers outnumber abortion clinics more than two to one. They provide all of their resources for free, including prenatal care, um, birthing classes, parenting classes, pregnancy tests, STI testing, ultrasounds, and often free baby boutique clothes and free diapers. Oh, but guess what? They don't kill babies and they provide all the resources for free. Additionally, and here's my last point. 
just to, because it's actually, it actually answers your question. Um, we have tens of thousands of federally qualified women's health care clinics in this country, um, none of which perform abortions, but provide all of the non-controversial health care services that the left says women won't have if the Planned Parenthoods are shut down. There are plenty of centers uh, in, within driving distance of where anyone lives that provides those same non-controversial services, and many of them even for free. So we won't have a problem caring for these babies um, and, and families uh, okay. when abortion is illegal. So and probably more would get started. <laughs> so how robust is it and how effective is it now? What? Now, those centers? Facilities. Oh, I just told you. The, fed the, the tens of thousands federally qualified women's health care clinics um, provide all of the same non-controversial services that Planned Parenthood and abortion centers do, minus the baby murdering part. And then you throw in the 3,000 pregnancy resource centers that provide all their resources for free. So what are the current statistics on, on well, well, what percentage of preventable abortions are, you know, are people who would, rather, who would go to these facilities, who utilize these facilities, what percentage are these compared to uh, abortions that, um, I don't know, that would cause women harm? Okay, good. yeah, good question. I would, well, I would say every abortion is preventable uh, because abortion is never medically necessary to save mom's life, even in a dangerous, high-risk pregnancy. This is something, yes, I know, it's something that you guys have been indoctrinated into believe by Planned Parenthood and the culture of death. And let me explain to you why. You can go to the Dublin Declaration, which is signed by over 1,000 neonatologists, biologists, embryologists, OBGYNs, doctors, and nurse practitioners, all signing a document saying that it's never medically necessary to perform an abortion to save mom's life. Why? Because you just induce early labor with Pitocin or you perform a cesarean section. And guess what? If you're pro-choice and don't give a rat's ass about the unborn child, you should actually support that. Why? It's safer for mom than the abortion. Yeah, so like so, a, so a, abortion a specifically like isn't medically necessary to save mom's life. So that's the answer. Um, but in terms of uh, the, the preventable abortions, that's why I would say all abortions are preventable. Um, but in terms of your very specific question, which was um, how, what percentage would um, – choose life for their unborn child when given, I don't know, like education, information, or help, or assistance. Um, it's hard to know specific numbers because a data set like that doesn't really exist. However, I will tell you this. Um, growing up in the pro-life movement and helping pregnancy resource centers, which actually provide women with, uh, what's that word you guys like? Oh yeah, choice, choices, meaning they actually give them all the information uh, and the risks so they can make an educated decision and choice. Um, these uh, pregnancy resource centers who have ultrasounds, and the vast majority of them do, um, have found that about 80% of women who are abortion-minded, meaning they, they actually want an abortion, uh, who get an ultrasound out and end up changing their mind and, and giving life to the baby and choosing life when they see the baby on the ultrasound, which starts to help us understand why the ACLU and Planned Parenthood file uh, lawsuits every time a state tries to pass an ultrasound requirement for when to get an abortion, uh, ultrasound before they get an abortion, because the left knows that most of those women will choose life for their babies, and that's a lot of money that they don't get to make uh, killing those children in the womb. Yeah. Okay. So and we'll do last one or two for the sake of time. Helps to what? House to house. Oh, okay. Or if people don't have homes, providing it uh, in really 
really accessible areas where people don't have to walk miles to, in order to get to each other. And are you are you saying this is like a, a good? Are you saying this is like oh this would be a good solution to decrease abortions or something like this? Like making more resources available? I just want to understand. Yeah, it, it's if we want to solve what you call the problem, uh, then the healthcare system will have to do better and to understand uh, the people that can produce a baby. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, most contraception is not that uh, expensive, um, but I would say that that is not the solution to decreasing abortions. Uh, in in fact, uh, the, uh, data has suggest here, and some of this has come from um, from Planned Parenthood, that up to I think it's up to fifty percent. Yeah, f- uh, about half of U.S. Abortion patients report using contraception in the month they became pregnant. That's the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's research branch. So uh, 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 half of uh, women getting abortions are saying that they got pregnant while actively on birth control uh, or contraception. So I- I'm saying that that's not going to actually persuade pro-lifers to like come together in a middle way together with pro-choice or still decrease abortions because they're getting the abortions anyways. Oftentimes the contraception is failing. And remember the goals of the pro-life movement is not to, to seek um, decreases in the abortion rate, though we'll celebrate that if we get it. It's to make it illegal and unthinkable. Um, uh, yeah, we'll do, last question. Okay, um, so like, I have like a little hypothetical, like abortion, like, um, so suppose, you probably drink before, right? Drink? Yeah. You, Alcohol? Yeah, mm-hmm. like everyone else, like, but you probably haven't like drunk drink. Suppose you have. Insane thing, okay. but say you're the only person who can help sustain that person, and the analogy is that they're relying on your good, body good. Yeah, you're, at least you're thinking deeper than yeah. the shallow my body, my choice. Good, yeah, good. It's because the same arguments I respect that reliance mm-hmm. on your body. So, what I'm curious is, are you morally and legally obligated to, to give my organs state? or whatever? Right? Yeah. yeah, and so they're. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, you guys familiar with the famous violinist thought experiment? Yeah, that's, that's the argument. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the the short version of that is this, and this is from Marianne Warren, by the way, from this. I think she made this argument in the '80s. So, um, it's good because, and here's why. I think it's it's the most persuasive the pro-choice movement has, and I'll tell you why it fails. Of course, you'll disagree, but I'll tell you why it fails. Um, is because they they're, they're, they are biting the bullet, which means they're admitting, for the sake of argument, that the pro-lifer is correct and the unborn is a person with the same rights as the mother, but that the rights of the mother still supersede the rights of the child, which they're admitting the child actually has. So it becomes more persuasive if it's, if it's uh, consistent and, and valid because they're admitting the pro-lifer's contention. So the, the argument goes like this. Uh, you, you, um, you wake up in the hospital, uh, and you're like connected to this dude. And you're like, what the? And the hospital comes in and says, oh my gosh, sir, we are so sorry. Uh, the Society of Music Lovers um, uh, has their, fa- their favorite famous violinist is dying and failing organs. And they scanned our database at midnight last night and they stuck him to the hospital and they found that you were the only person with the blood type or organs that matched the famous violinist and they found your address and they kidnapped you and they knocked you unconscious. They took you to our hospital. They plugged you into the famous violinist. Consent, like and, right, and, so, and then they're saying, then the argument goes, um, we wouldn't have allowed this to happen had we known about it, but it did. So to disconnect you from the famous violinist would be to kill him. 
And so the pro-choicer or Marianne Warren in her article asks, would it be morally incumbent upon you to accede to the situation? In other words, do you, do you, are you morally required to remain plugged in? Okay. So that's, that's the argument. It's better at, at, for, for reasons because it admits the pro-lifer's argument. Here's why it fails. Okay. Um, firstly, uh, parents have a very specific moral and legal duty to their children that strangers don't have to one another. Now, would it be very nice of me uh, to remain plugged into the famous violinist? I think so. <laughs> uh, or if you needed my organ from a car crash, uh, would it be very nice of me? Yeah, that would be very nice of me. But as you pointed out, right, not morally or legally required. Why? Because I don't have a moral or legal duty to this stranger. What, do, what are parents' duties to their children? To well, to provide the basis of care, food, shelter, care, for, and also um, not killing them. Uh, so so the, the first right of the parent would be to not kill their child. So that, that, that right is different. Now, now, and you might have just said it. Someone might say, well, what if your toddler has ailing organs and yours match? Should you be morally and legally required to give your uh, kidney to your toddler? Now, some pro-lifers will say yes, in which case the argument's done, I guess, on their side of it. Um, I, and most watchers say no, actually. We shouldn't have laws on the books forcing parents to give their kidney to their born biological child. So they're killing them by not acting. Is right, you're, well, you're seeing, well, you're, right, so you pointed out a yeah. difference there, and I'm about to get to that. What I will say is that the kidney is not created to preserve and save another person's life. It's created to preserve my life. What is the uterus for? This is why women can't have hysterectomies and not really have any alternative medical downfalls. Why can't, why? Because the uterus is the only organ in the woman's body, ready? That's not created for her. It's created for the creation and then growth and protection of a different human being. So that would be the second reason. The third reason why those arguments fail is the difference between killing and letting die, which you just touched on, okay? Um, the left, the pro-abortion advocate is analogizing, <coughs> unplugging with abortion. That's the whole point of the argument, right? Because they, they think the pro-lifer will say, yes, I can unplug myself from the famous violinist. And by the way, I say that. I say, yes, I can morally unplug myself from the famous violinist. So then the pro-abortion advocate goes, ha ha, I got you, pro-lifer. Because that's the same as abortion. That's the whole point of the argument. Except it's not the same as abortion, because killing and letting die are very different. Had I not been plugged into that famous violinist, would he have lived? No, he would have died. The natural course of events would have followed. Would that have given me the right, though, to slit his throat with a box cutter after I found out that his kidneys were failing? No, that would be killing, right? That would be killing, not letting die. If I unplug myself from the famous violinist, he doesn't die because I kill him, he dies because of his underlying ailment. Correct? When you kill the unborn child through abortion, are you letting the baby die? If you're being honest, you cannot say it's letting die. You're not unplugged. When the baby, when the baby dies, the baby dies through dismemberment, not through letting die. It's not disconnecting. Okay, okay, correct. You, okay, yes, you can call it that. Then guess what? Guess what you're also going to have to admit with me right now? When you're in space with your buddy, let's say you and I get really rich and we get one of those private tickets on Elon Musk's rocket, 
and we're floating around there in our NASA suits and we're doing 50 feet jumps on the moon because of no gravity and I yank out your oxygen tube. I didn't kill you, I just withheld oxygen. I just unplugged you, I didn't kill you. I don't really get it because I don't agree that's killing either way. Huh? I don't really get it because I get that's killing either way because I might not agree that a fetus is a person philosophically. I agree that's biologically in the mind. If, and I do agree that's in the killing. space analogy, bro, yeah. do you die because of some underlying ailment or because I pulled your oxygen tube and killed you? Eleven. Right. Does the baby die? Or does the famous violinist die because I kill him or because of his underlying ailment? I think it's both. No, it's, it's his both. underlying ailment. Had I not been plugged into him through this ex extraordinary form of modern life support, he would have died anyways. The baby doesn't die anyways, okay? The baby dies because you dismember the baby. So, so it's not it's not letting it's not life. letting die, it's killing. So that's that's the third reason why that argument fails. And lastly, the famous violinist only works to justify abortions from rape. Because I didn't consent to being knocked out. Right. Right. So yeah, so it, if those even work, it yeah. only works to justify abortion when the mother is pregnant through rape. Yeah, not right. for the 99.5% of all other abortions, which I think you probably wouldn't join me in trying to make it legal. Yeah. So all right, thank you guys for the sake of time. We're going we're gonna to call it quit. Thanks for all your questions. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed that lecture and Q&A at Kennesaw State University. Share this episode broadly. Send it to your pro-abortion friends and family members and offer to take them out to coffee on you. If they'll listen to it, have conversations about it, defend life, push back against the culture of death in such a decisive moment in the battle for life. If you want to follow me and get more Excellent commentary and content from the front lines of the abortion wars. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. And if you want to see my speaking schedule, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see me speak live and local, or to book me for an event. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>